0: we're going to go to a very, very short book in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long, and uh, it's a very important book, though. It's a book of prophecy that was written by a contemporary of Josiah, which is one of the last kings of Judah. So, if you'll turn with me to the book of Zephaniah, it's near the end of the Old Testament, after Habakkuk, um, uh, but before Zechariah and Malachi and Haggai you 'll find it uh, stuck in there in the middle between Habakkuk and and uh, uh, Ze- and, and Haggai so if you can find their raid right there we 'll get started. Zephaniah, as I said, is a contemporary of um, Josiah, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. It is just a few years before the Babylonian captivity, which began to occur in the year 605 B.C., if you'll recall. But Josiah was reigning uh, during those earlier years, uh, just before the Babylonian captivity. And Zephaniah was a prophet that was also a descendant of one of the kings. In fact, he's a descendant of Hezekiah, the grand or great grandfather of both Josiah and Zephaniah, as it turns out. They're distant cousins at best, but they are related. They're both part of the Davidic line. And that puts Zephaniah in a very unique spot. Uh, with regard to the prophets of Israel, because he's the only one that is known to be a descendant of David. Uh, But he writes this very short uh, book of prophecy, and it's a contemporary setting that basically looks forward to the Babylonian captivity, but much further than that, uh, all the way to the end times. So it's a very important prophetic book uh, for end times as well as the near prophecy that he was giving with regard to what's going to be taking place in Judah during his lifetime and shortly after. So Zephaniah uh, is a very important book, uh, not very well known, and not very many people actually read the book of Zephaniah, but it's really, really a very good uh, source of information for us with regard to end times and how God deals with his people uh, and the sins that they are committing and how he's judging those sins in a very, very severe way. But also, it's given great hope for the nation of Israel at the end of the book. So we'll get through, I think, the, the entire book tonight. It's only three chapters long, and they're short, relatively short chapters. So uh, we'll go ahead and move into the study of that great book of Zephaniah, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1, where it says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. A lot of ayahs in there. And by the way, the uh, ending of those names uh, is a reference to the Lord God, Yahweh. That's an abbreviated form of Yah. Uh, way. And uh, whenever you see a Hebrew name that ends in I-A-H, it is always understood that that name uh, has something to do with God. In this case, Zephaniah's name means uh, God hides and or hidden of the Lord. So it's an interesting statement that, that he is one of those that has been hidden uh, kind of tucked away in the Old Testament scriptures between some of the other uh, uh, books of the Old Testament prophets. The minor prophets, he's among the 12 minor prophets. He's also considered to be one of the, what we call pre-exilic prophets. Uh, Nine of the uh, minor prophets wrote before the Babylonian captivity. He's the last of that nine. The other three, uh, as I mentioned, Haggai and... um, Malachi and Zechariah, all of them were post exilic prophets who wrote after the Babylonian captivity. But here, Zephaniah gives his lineage, and again, it goes back to the king Hezekiah. Now, Joshua, Josiah rather, was also a great grandson of Hezekiah. We had, Hezekiah was a good king, and when he ended his throne, his uh, time on the throne, he turned his kingdom over to um, Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the most evil of the kings of Judah. And he reigned for a good 45 or 50 years, and then he turned his kingdom over to his son Ammon. And, and Ammon was also a very bad king. And then came along Josiah, and he started his reign when he was only eight years old. And he began to reform those things that his father Ammon and his grandfather Manasseh had done by the time he became around the age of 18. And from that point on, Josiah did a remarkable job of bringing reformation to the land but it was only on the surface, unfortunately. But it was during those first 18 years, apparently, that Zephaniah writes this prophetic word that we have before us. He talks about the things that are yet to come. And apparently, uh, the nation of Assyria is still uh, very much in, in power, and Babylon hasn't yet come to that place where they were able to defeat the Assyrians, which took place around the year of 606 B.C., but here in this book, uh, it apparently is written during the time before Josiah's reforms. And it tells us, in verse 2, what God's intent is for the nation of Israel, the Judah. We're going to see the phrase, the day of the Lord, referred to seven times in this book, and references to the day of the Lord in slightly other different forms, Uh, for almost a total of 20 references to the end times, the day of the Lord. So that's why we say it's such an important book. But here in verse 2, he begins to present to the nation of Judah uh, the reasons that God is going to be judging them. It tells us in verse 2, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens. The fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks, along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Pretty serious stuff. It's uh, very, very condemning. Why would God go to such extremes? Because the nation of Judah had gone to such extents. As was obvious when we look through the history of the nation of Judah during the time of Manasseh and Ammon, we find terrible de- degradation and terrible sins were being committed, worship of Baal and the offering up of their children uh, sacrifices to Baal and to Molech. God has brought judgment to them. Now it's not yet happened, but He's warning them this is going to happen because of what they have done. He continues to say in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of them." See, what has taken place is that they were worshipping other gods. And he's actually bringing condemnation to different classes of individuals here. Those who are priests and false priests. Uh, The names of the idolatrous priests. That word idolatrous is a word that in the Hebrew it's chemerim. And it's those who wore black robes. Um, The implication is they were Satan worshippers. And you may be familiar with Satan worship uh, in our present day. It is a serious situation that is becoming more and more prevalent. And one of the things that identifies them is the wearing of black robes. So there is a very, very serious problem in Israel. Then it was also not only those, but they were worshipping all of the various uh, gods of the Canaanites on their own housetops. They were practicing idolatry. And that is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, The Lord is married to them. And so as far as he was concerned, from a spiritual perspective, they were committing spiritual adultery. And they were worshipping these foreign gods on their housetops. You notice that um, in Israel today, we still have flat roofs where they would uh, have what we would call a patio, a place where they could relax in the cool of the evening. And they were using those areas on the rooftop to build altars and sacrifice uh, to their foreign gods. And then the last one, probably the worst of all of them, was those who mixed their worship of God with the worship of the idolatrous uh, uh, gods of the Canaanites as well. He says, those who worship and swear, ozed by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, a god of... Uh, the Canaanites, also known as Molech. So, this is a very serious thing that they were engaged in, and it wasn't just a few, it was all the people uh, were just completely turned away. And this is the time of Josiah's beginning to reign. And again, he didn't really bring reformation until his 18th year. And he also only reigned for about 30 years or less. And he died very young, at the age, I think, of 38 or 39. That was an unfortunate thing for the people of Israel. But after him, there were no good kings, I should say, of Judah rather than Israel, because Israel at this time was the northern ten tribes and not affiliated with the southern tribe of Judah at all. They had already been uh, taken captive in 722 B.C. So we're really not referring to Israel as a twelve-tribe nation here. We're referring to Judah only, the southern tribes, but this is what's been taking place in the city of Jerusalem, and God is bringing judgment against them for that very reason. He says in verse 6, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Again, we'll see that phrase, the day of the Lord, spoken frequently here. The day of the Lord is at hand. I find that to be a most interesting thing. Now, in his case, he is speaking about the Babylonian Uh, captivity, the exile that is about to take place. That is a day of judgment, and he's talking about that day of judgment as a reference to the day of the Lord when God brings judgment against his people. But all of the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament can indeed have both a near and a far fulfillment. And that is the case with Zephaniah, and we will see that as we move forward. So not only is he talking about the day of the Lord uh, in the near sense with the Babylonian captivity, but he's also going to be taking uh, that phrase, the day of the Lord, and applying it to the very last of days and the days that we are in that we will enter into, I think, in the near future. And, of course, we don't know how long it will be before the church is taken out of the world, But it is imperative for us to understand that God is going to judge this world, both the Jews who are on the earth and also the Gentiles who are on the earth at the time of that judgment, in that period of time that is known as the Day of the Lord. But here he's talking about the near fulfillment of that particular phrase, the Day of the Lord is at hand. He says, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. There was a lot of evil going on in the world in that day, in that particular area of the world. And many of those things that were being done were being done in spite of The fact that God had shown them how they should live and what they should do to uh, be His faithful servants. But they were neglecting all of that. And although some of them were giving, I guess, some time to the Lord, they were devoting part of their days to other gods as well. God was only partly in their lives. And there's so much of that in the world today. You know, there are a lot of people today that call themselves Christians. Oh, I believe in God. Or they might say, I'm a real spiritual person. Uh, They might even say that they believe in Jesus Christ. But they don't really apply that in their lives. And they don't live it in the way that they live out their lives. So it's very much like it was in that day. But some of the phrases that he uses here uh, in verse nine in the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold that 's kind of a, a unique phrase that you don 't find much reference to, and it isn 't really given clear uh, indication here as to what he means, but apparently they were apparently they were uh, worshiping the god of the Philistines, Dagon. And part of the rituals in the worship of Dagon was to jump over the threshold so that their feet would not touch the threshold of the Dagon temple. And so that's apparently a reference to that. And he says, those who filled their masters' houses with violence and deceit. So there was corruption, there was all kinds of evil things going on in the name of religion. Verse 10 says, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, a sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off. Now some of your translations don't have some of those phrases that I just mentioned, but this translation that I'm using, the New King James, does give the actual Hebrew word, maktesh, which is apparently the area where they sold merchandise in Jerusalem. And uh, the merchants were cut down, or would be cut down. And it tells us here very specifically the very path that Nebuchadnezzar took when he invaded Jerusalem. He came in through the fish gate, in the second gate, and destroyed the walls and the city and... and, uh, and all of the merchant area of the city in that order. And that's how he came in from the northern side, just as Zephaniah is here prophesying. So it's very much a specific prophecy with regard to the invasion of the Babylonians when they come into Jerusalem in 586 B.C. ultimately. They did take... Captives in six hundred five b c and later in, in five ninety seven b c but the major destruction of Jerusalem did not happen until five eighty six b c that would be many years after this writing. but he says in verse twelve, and it came to pass at that time that I will or it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil." Now, if you've got the old King James Version, you might see that phrase, settled in their lees. That's an expression that has to do with uh, the fermentation of wine. And when wine was originally put into the bottle, the fermenting process would uh, begin and there would be a lot of residue on the bottom of the wine bottle and they would have to take the wine and pour it out through a strainer to remove that that settlement of the lees in the bottle of wine until there was pure wine. So the implication here in that settle settlement of the lees or in the case of this translation, uh, it doesn't say lees, but it says complacency. That's the idea. They had become complacent and they had settled in their lees. They're not at all interested in the things of God. They're complacent. They're thinking, well, we don't have to worry about the judgment of God. Yeah, the prophets have been saying that for a long time, and we're prosperous, we're doing well. We don't have to really worry in our day that any of that which they've spoken is going to happen. We are just fine. We're not going to suffer. That is the way mankind always responds to the Word of God. It's so in this present day. Peter warned about that, you may recall. The scoffers in the last days he spoke about, and he said they were saying and would say the same thing. Oh, everything's going as it has from the very beginning. What are you talking about the rapture of the church for? You know, that's just not going to happen. My grandmother talked about the rapture of the church in her day. And since it hasn't happened yet, their argument is it's way off in the future. But we don't know that. We can only know that the Word of God tells us we should be prepared, that we should expect it to be imminent, and we should live with the attitude that He could come at any time. He may not, but I believe He will. But that was their attitude. They were complacent. It says in verse 19 again, or 13 rather, therefore their goods shall become booty, their houses a desolation. They shall build houses and not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. You get the impression that God wants to warn them that it's not going to be a fun time. And that again is, I think, something that we should expect to be fulfilled not only in His day but also in the last days. We see in this particular passage a transition from that which is very near but to that which also applies to the far prophecy that is being referred to here, that as the end of days, the last days, the day of the Lord. And he's continuing in verse 17, "...I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath." but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. That's something that did definitely happen in the Babylonian exile, but it is also going to happen in the last days when God will bring judgment upon the people of God and upon the nations around Israel. And chapter 2 begins to talk about the judgment not only of Jerusalem and Judah, but also of the surrounding nations. Take a look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. That's a reference to Israel, Judah. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do you see what the Lord is saying through Zephaniah? There is a possibility for you if you will turn, if you will return to God, if you will repent. That's always the case when God brings judgment. He offers the opportunity for men to turn back to Him. And he's given that same opportunity to those in Judah, in the city of Jerusalem, in the day that he is talking about here, that both would be taking place in our day and did take place in the day of Zephaniah. Judgment on the nations follows this plea by the Lord to turn. He says in verse 4, For Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon, Desolate, they shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coast, uh, the nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there will be no inhabitant. Again, those are the cities of the Philistines that he's referred to here. Uh, The Gaza Strip, the area that we know as the Gaza Strip today, was a territory that they occupied. They no longer are there. You will not find any Philistines in the world in this present hour. They were destroyed, they were taken out, and God decided they would not continue as a nation. He continues to say in verse 6, The sea coast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for their flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. Now, unfortunately, I think the New American Standard is the better translation in this particular case in verse 7, and also once more in chapter 3. The word that I just read, captives, is better translated fortunes. He's going to return their fortunes. He's talking about the people of Judah. He's talking about their captivity and returning from their captivity. He's talking about when they do return to the land, they will inhabit the seacoast that the Philistines had inhabited. They will be able to prosper, and their fortunes will be restored. That's the promise again. After having given this condemning word to the Philistines, he reaches out to his own people and says, there is coming a day when you will be back in the land, and you will be prosperous once again. He says in verse 8 now, he moves to the eastern side of the nation of Judah, instead of the western side where he, we have just been. He says in verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made, my arrogant, made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Now that did indeed happen. Moab and Ammon are no longer nations that you can ever find a Moabite or an Ammonite. But the nation of Jordan, the southern nation part of the southern uh, part of Jordan and the northern part of Saudi Arabia constitute this area of Moab and Ammon that is a very desert place, just as he has described. It used to be a very plush, lush place, but it was destroyed and it never recovered. And now, today, the nation of Israel is taking back a portion of that land, the West Bank, but not all of it yet but it will be taken back in that day because God says it will be. It hasn't yet happened, but they will occupy that land once again. Take note of the fact also that Moab and Ammon are related to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. They are descendants of Abraham through Lot. Remember Lot's daughters, both were impregnated by Lot, and one of them bore the Ammonites, the descendants of Ammon, were from him or from her, and the descendants of Moab were from the other daughter of Lot. So they're all related to the Jews, distant cousins, if you will, but they're gone. They're no longer alive as a nation, as a people group. Then he says in verse 10, "This shall they shall have for their pride because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. That happened when the Babylonians came into Judah and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The Ammonites and the Moabites were applauding the Babylonians for the taking of the city of Jerusalem. And they came in and took spoil and God judged them for that. He says in verse 11, The Lord will be awesome to them, or terrible, for He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth, people, shall worship him, each one from his place, instead of, indeed, all the shores of the nations. And then he goes on in the south, you Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by the sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. So he moved from the south in verse 12 all the way to the north in verse 13. So all around, encompassing the nation of Israel, the land of Judah, uh, all the nations are here being judged by the Lord. Verse 14 says, "...the herds shall lie down in her midst," speaking again of Assyria. "...every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the captains of her pillars." Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the sea to work. This is a rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, there is none beside me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Nineveh was a great city. It is no longer a city. There have been... Uh, evidences of archaeological digs where they've located the original city of Nineveh. And it is very much, as it is described here, a desolate place indeed. God judged the nations. God judged Assyria. And that's why we can take from this statement that Zephaniah wrote before Assyria actually was destroyed by Babylon, because they're still very much in power, according to this, uh, part of the prophecy Verse 1 of chapter 3 is now where we will enter into a period where it is very obvious that it is no longer talking about the near prophecy, but the far, far time away. Still referred to as the day of the Lord, but it is a time of restoration that he is going to begin to bring forth here after having spoken of such terrible devastation in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the nations surrounding them, but now the judgment will have been passed. At that time, all of that had been, uh, will be taking place um, and be accomplished by Babylon. But the future is still going to involve a great deal of trouble for the land of Israel and the people of God. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. So here again, he's bringing condemnation to the people of God because they, though they have been warned over and over again, they will not change their ways. They will not turn to their God. In the last days, there will be finally a turning to them. And we are going to see that in a few moments. But he continues in verse 6 to say, "...I have cut off nations." Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore, in verse 8 he says, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That has not happened yet. He's talking about a global judgment, not just of the nations around Israel. He's talking here about a time that has not yet taken place, where he will assemble the kingdoms for judgment. That will take place after the tribulation period, before the millennial reign of Christ, where he sits in judgment of the nations as he gathers all the people before himself. And that's what will take place after that seven-year period of tribulation that we know will take place in our future yet. Verse 9 says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So all the nations will be gathered together in unity to let him reign as their king. That is going to be the time when the Prince of Peace sits on the throne of David. That is a time when he will reign with a rod of iron over all the nations. And this statement that he makes in verse 9 is an interesting one. He says again, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they will all call on the name of the Lord. Now, there was once a time long ago, in the time of Nimrod, when there was a one-nation existence of all mankind. One language. They all had the same language, but they were seeking to build something that was an abomination to God, and God judged them for that and and dispersed all of the peoples and, and mixed up their languages into many different languages. And it was a confusing time. It's been that way ever since. But there's coming a time when we will all be able to communicate, apparently, with one another with a pure language, a language... Either that language that they once had before the fall or that language that he will choose to make us able to speak and understand in that day that will be all that we'll need. I'm looking forward to that. Some people believe it will be Hebrew. It might be. Not really sure. I can't be definitive about it. But it does indicate that there will be a unity in that time. That's not yet happened. Verse 10 continues and says, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. There's coming a day when the Ethiopians will be favored by God in that day, And the book of Psalms also has a place where it talks about the Ethiopians lifting their hands in praise to their God. It's going to happen in the future. It hasn't yet happened. He says in verse 12, "...I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies." Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. He's talking here about the remnant of the nation of Israel. Not just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, but all of the nations Tribes, All twelve tribes would be included, and we see that in the book of Revelation, we see that in other places where God restores Israel, and there is a remnant that he saves during the tribulation period. A third of the nation of Israel will perish, but there is a remnant that he will save out of that tribulation time. And they will be preserved in the city of Petra, we're told that very clearly in the book of Isaiah, and we saw that in Jesus' own statements that he made in the Olivet Discourse. So all of these things are playing together with what we've been studying again on Sunday morning with regard to the last days. And so here we're seeing the remnant being restored to the land, and they will be able to worship the Lord and there won't be a deceitful tongue among them. They won't be evil any longer. They'll feed their own flocks. They'll live lives extended beyond the number of days that we certainly are able to live in our present situation. The millennial reign of Christ will be an established time of great prosperity for not only the Jews, but for all the world. And he says in verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. No further judgment needed. It will be a time of great blessing, and the people of God will be able to experience that which they have hoped for. The time of Jacob's trouble will have passed and they will enter into that millennial reign of Christ, that kingdom age that they would long for and hope for and desire, even in this present hour. It is not yet taking place. It will indeed take place. And notice he says very emphatically, the King of Israel, that's Jesus The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He will sit on his throne, and he will reign in that day. Verse 16 says again, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. There's a song we used to sing that's based on these verses that we just read. The Lord your God is in the midst of you, is mighty, mighty. He will will save, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will joy over you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. That's a great passage of Scripture that we've just looked at and it's a promise of God to the people of God that is yet to be fulfilled. So this is, again, a great book of prophecy because it gives us that near sense of danger that they are going to enter into a time of judgment. But then it ends with this beautiful passage of wonderful news for the people of God. Those who come back to him, those who serve him in the last days, will be blessed beyond measure. He goes on in verse 18 to finish this passage. He says, "...I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly." who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your fortunes. My version says captives. Again, New American Standard is right. When I return your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You see the wonderful blessing that is in store for the people of God and for the nations. That kingdom will be established. That kingdom is yet to be fulfilling all of that which is spoken here in Zephaniah, all of that which is spoken in other places in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Zechariah, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, in the Gospel record, in the prophecies that Jesus himself gives. Those end times prophecies are yet to be fulfilled and it is worthy of our blessed hope to continue to look to God for this ultimate fulfillment, expecting it at any day. There's still much that has to be fulfilled. There's still a lot of trouble yet ahead for the people of Israel and for the nations of the world. But this, for the church, we are in a wonderful place of blessing. And we will not see the wrath, I believe, poured out upon the nations, upon the people of God. Because that wrath is for them who do not believe in Jesus Christ. For us, as the Church, we will escape those things that are coming upon the earth. That's the promise of God's Word. And all of those things, I believe, are soon to take place. So keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. And as good as I have said earlier that we've been able to take a look at this Old Testament book of Zephaniah because it's so full of promise as well as judgment. Let us be mindful of this. There is judgment, but after judgment, there is grace and mercy. Thank you for coming. God bless you. We'll see you next time.